If you would take your Bibles and turn today to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. So the plan is today we're going to finish out John chapter 4, and then next week um, is December, the first week of the first Christ, uh, words are hard, okay? The first Sunday of December, and we're going to start our Advent series next week. We'll have four messages um, throughout the month of December around the theme of Come, Let Us Adore Him. And then that'll culminate on Christmas Day. We'll have church here at 10 o'clock on Christmas Day, one service. So I hope that you can go ahead and make your plans to worship with us that day. Can you think of any better day of the week to have Christmas than Sunday? You know, to be here and worship the Lord together as we celebrate his birth. So today, we're going to finish John chapter 4. That'll leave us uh, about just, a, just shy of a fifth of the way through the Gospel of John, and we'll pick that up again in the new year. So today, we're in John chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 54. Now, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour which, when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to sit under your word for the next few minutes, to read it, to listen to it, to hear you speak to us through these things. We ask that today, truly, you would speak to our hearts. Would you calm our hearts and our minds? Lord, we have a lot of things that are going on in our lives. We have a lot of everyday distractions that, that threaten to press in and, 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 just, and keep us from fully giving ourselves to understanding your word. And Lord, help us to see that we can't do anything else in life without understanding who you are and what you have to say to us, that you are the greatest and most wonderful thing that we need to, to place in our lives and put first. And we ask today that you would show us our sin, that you show us the Savior, Jesus Christ, you would draw us to yourself, that we may walk out of this place different than when we came in today, because we have heard your truth proclaimed, and you have applied it to our hearts, and we have been willing and ready to respond to what you want to do in us today. In your name we pray. Amen. If something truly defines you in life, then, then it has ongoing effects in your life that you can see time and again. 
Let me give you an example. If, if someone walked up to me today, when we were out maybe here or, or out in our community, and said to me, are you married? Then my response would be, yes. And then if they followed that up with, well, prove it. Well, I could offer a myriad of things from my past or, or tokens of that. I could offer a, a picture album full of wedding photos, a, a wedding ring. I could relay feelings and emotions that I had on my wedding day or, or even stories from the years gone by in our marriage. But you could rightly observe, if, if that's what I shared with you, that there are thousands of people today who have similar stories and tokens, but they're not married, Right? I could offer then the strongest and probably the most expected proof to someone that I was married, and that would be my wife, right? And, 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 and more than that, the day-to-day life that we live together. I mean, if you come by our home and observe our family in, or observe our family in public, then you would witness a marriage in action. You would witness a mom and a dad trying to help small children not kill themselves every day. You would witness, you know, a kiss before I head out the door to work or return in the evening. You'd witness, you know, the family devotions that are shared around the table or other things that are the ongoing evidence that I don't just claim to be married. I am married to this wonderful woman, right? And a true relationship with God that we have in faith through Jesus, that's much the same in our lives. You see, faith in Jesus Christ and a relationship with God isn't an emotional experience. It isn't a spiritual curiosity or even having some good feelings about him. A true relationship with God takes authentic, life-changing faith. It is a faith that is an actual commitment to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It is an informed belief in who Jesus is and what he's done as we read about them in the scriptures. And it is an ongoing and ever-increasing dependence on Jesus Christ. A lot of people in our world claim to be followers of Christ. A lot of people have good or at least non-negative feelings about Jesus. Some are even amazed at all the works he's done. But they've never made a commitment in faith to follow him. They've never placed their full dependence on Jesus. You may ask someone, hey, are you a, a Christian? And, uh, and they may say yes, Right? And then you, you ask them, hey, well, how do, you, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know you're a follower of Christ? And they may give you some story of a childhood confession of faith. And that may be all they offer you. And, and, and that may be a, a good thing, but, but I would argue that true, genuine faith in Jesus results in more than just a story about how you, placed, you said a prayer when you were four or five years old. True, genuine faith in Jesus results in a life lived in growing faith in him. And you see, as a Christian, you should be able to look at your life today and see evidence that you have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you're a perfect person, but that you, throughout your life, experience the ongoing, continued conviction of sin submission to God in your life, and growth in Christ, forsaking sin and turning more to the Savior. The gospel is not self-improvement. It isn't a choice of convenience. It isn't an emotional high. It isn't a mere curiosity. It isn't a higher consciousness. You know what? The gospel is not even a religion. 
The gospel is new life, found by placing genuine trust in the truth about Jesus Christ. As Jesus continued in his ministry, he continued to seek to grow people's faith in himself. And that's what we see here in John chapter 4, verses 34 through 45. We see an incident of growing faith in Jesus. He rebuked those who only came out to see some type of performance. And he called those who were truly seeking him to a greater and more and true belief in him as the Son of God. And in John chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, we see this today. We see that that true faith in Jesus Christ is rooted in the revelation of who he is and what he has done and results in a changed eternity and earthly transformation. This is what faith in Christ does. And it's not rooted in, in, in all these signs and wonders. It's not rooted in what has he done for me lately. It's rooted in the revelation that we, you and I have in the word of God. When you look in the scriptures, that's where you find who Jesus is. And what Jesus did, and we'll see that today, back up that claim. The signs that he performed, John talks about them. He uses that word, I used it before, um, when we looked in John chapter 2 at the first miracle he did in Cana. John uses this word sign, and the idea isn't a show or a spectacle. It's a confirmation. It's an authentication that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And if we want to see true faith worked out in our lives, this is exactly what it is. We, we, we see the revelation. It's all rooted in who he is and what he's done. And then it's going to have effects in our lives. It not only changes our eternity, but it changes our, our earthly lives. There's a transformation of the gospel. So let's see how this works out in the, in the account before us here in John chapter 4. And the first thing we see is the faithlessness observed by Jesus as he comes into Galilee. We see there's a location change in the story. It says now... After two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. So last time we were together looking at this, we were looking at the encounter that Jesus had while he was in Samaria with all of those Samaritans who were placing their faith and belief in Jesus as the Messiah. They had had seen, they had begun to see the effects of the message of himself. That is the gospel, right? That's the message of Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection, and, and, and they began to see that even though he hadn't died, he was coming and proclaiming the message of himself to save people from their sins. They had seen that in the life of this woman that Jesus had met at the well. And they had come out and they begged Jesus to stay for two days. And for two days he stayed. And he talked to his disciples about how the, the, the fields were white unto harvest, meaning those, those were people there ready to place their faith in him. And so after two days, he began to travel with his disciples to this area of Galilee in the northern part of the nation of Israel. And this recalls for us, if you look back at the first verse of John chapter 4, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So this, is, this goes all the way back to the first part where Jesus had begun to make that trip to Galilee. Now that trip is being resumed. Because the time for Jesus' ultimate confrontation with Jewish leadership had not yet come. One day, that showdown would take place and it would result in the culmination of Christ's ministry sacrificing himself for the sins of mankind. But for now, the time was not yet right. 
And we learn that as he goes to Galilee, there would be no stirring up of great controversy or attention because though the location is changing, there is an unchanged problem that Jesus is encountering even here in Galilee. It goes on here in John chapter 4 and verse 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Jesus is from Nazareth. Though he was born in Bethlehem, he is from the area of Nazareth, which is a Galilean area. And John remarks that Jesus observes that a prophet is without honor in his own country, so therefore he returns to the area of Galilee. Now this phrase is an interesting phrase, and it's one that's seen elsewhere, used by the gospel writers, but it's used other places in the Gospels to explain why Jesus left certain areas. Uh, You think especially, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 13, that Jesus did not many, many works there because of their unbelief. And that phrase is used, a prophet is without honor in his own country. But here, it is used before Jesus even goes to Galilee. And so then furthermore, if you read, chapter, you read verse 44, maybe it's a little bit perplexing that when Jesus says that there's the prophets that honor his own country, then he goes to the people of Galilee, and in verse 45, what do you read? The people what? They welcome him. They receive him. It, you almost expect it not to be that way, right? Well, we have to understand what is going on here when we see that Jesus is not rebuffed after a statement like this. Because for one... Jesus' statement communicates, first of all, there is an area that needs to be reached, and that is the area of Galilee. Galilee does not yet know the message of the Savior or understand his identity of the Messiah. They know who he is. He's the carpenter's son. He's Joseph, right, and Mary. They knew who he was, but they didn't know why he came. And so he returns to Galilee here early in his ministry to preach this message of who he is. It was the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost, beginning with Israel. And so he returns to his home region, where he has not yet been honored, we could say, by by people realizing the message of the Messiah. But second, do understand this from what we read throughout this story. You'll see it in just a minute. The view the Galileans have of Jesus may seem very favorable for now, but understand it is not a response of true saving faith. There will, be no, there will be no undue attention that's drawn to Jesus in the area. So thus he avoids a premature confrontation with the Pharisees. Because in fact, the Galileans mentioned here, are, they went to the feast in Jerusalem. If you'll remember back in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, that was at, at the Passover feast that was held in Jerusalem. And I said then that all of Israel would come down to Jerusalem. All the men would come down there for the feast. And we're told here that these people had indeed gone there. And and if you remember, after Jesus cleansed the temple, he also did many different signs and wonders and miracles in Jerusalem. And it said there were many people believing on him, but Jesus, literally it says, had no faith in their faith. They were just there to see what a guy could do. They were just there to see what what was the next miracle he was going to perform or who the next person he was going to help. So there they saw, this, these Galileans saw this hometown prophet do many things, but they had no true faith in him. They don't recognize him as the Messiah, but as a miracle worker. Oh sure, they exhibited 
curiosity at what he could do. But curiosity is not faith. Jesus will, in fact, then confront that in this pericope that we have before us today. And so Jesus returns to his home region, not, understand, not to an overwhelming crowd of true worshipers, but to those who need to understand his life's work and ministry. And as he arrives, John presents to us the second sign of his gospel. It is recorded to continue to show us Jesus' identity as the Son of God, the giver of life and peace and hope. Because remember, the theme of John is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And John would say at the end of John chapter 20, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so what we see here is we see the faithlessness is observed to the people, but then Jesus directly confronts this faithlessness when this man comes to him with a physical need. In verse 46, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus has returned to this area in Galilee known as Cana, where he had performed the very first miracle uh, in, ever recorded in the Gospels, of turning the water into wine that we looked at in John chapter 2. And it's also, you know, for just to keep in your mind, there's a, there's a disciple named Nathaniel. This is where Nathaniel is from. He's from the area of Cana. And as you might expect, because there were many who were at the feast in Jerusalem, there are many who have heard what Jesus is doing, his arrival does not go unnoticed in the area. And as we observed in the last verse, those in Galilee had been at the Passover feast in Jerusalem and observed the miraculous signs. They knew who he was. They knew what he could do. And the word began to spread around the region. And so then we learned from about 16 to 20 miles away from a, from a city called Capernaum, there comes a man with a physical need seeking Jesus. And this isn't just any man, it's actually a man of some import. This is referred to there in your text as a nobleman. The idea behind that word in the Greek is it's a royal official. Most likely, um, people, the scholars agree that this man probably served in some capacity under the ruler Herod Antipas. He was the tetrarch of Galilee at this time. Now, we don't know who he was. We don't know what he did. You know, we don't even know if he was a Jew or a Gentile serving under this ruler, this Roman ruler. But we do learn that he had a problem. His son is sick. His son, we'll learn here, is at the point of death. You know, that reminds us today, I, I thought about this this week as I thought about this man who was a ruler, he, he probably had some influence in his life, that it doesn't matter your earthly status, we all face similar issues and problems in our lives. Those in, in power are, are experiencing great possessions in life cannot avoid the hardships of sickness and the inevitable reality of death. And, and these hardships in our lives and the lives of those we love most, they bring us very, very, very realistically face to face with this fact there is very little that we can actually control in our lives. And it brings us to the point that we have a God who is sovereign, whether we want to admit it or not. And here, the severe condition of this man's son brings him to the point of great need and turns his thoughts towards Jesus. 
And so he undertakes an action seeking to find help for his son. He comes imploring Jesus to help him. We have here in verse 47, it says, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son. The, the phrasing there, if you, if you look at the Greek and, and, and break it out, it communicates the idea of repeatedly asking something. Literally, this man comes to Jesus repeatedly begging for his help. And if you sit here today as a father and you had a son in that condition, you, you probably resonate with that, right? That if that was your child that was at the point of death and you knew who Jesus was and you had heard about what he could do, wouldn't you come the same, begging for his help? A royal official in service to the local ruler has humbled himself before what many just consider to be a carpenter's son, having heard or perhaps even observed what he can do. His son is at the point of death, and before it is too late, he hopes to find help in this Jesus, the one who has done so many miraculous things. He's not come for personal salvation or to place faith in Jesus, but for some miraculous medical aid. And in so doing, we are revealed, what's revealed here are a couple of erroneous ideas of his own, in his own thinking. First, notice that, that this man was wrong in that he assumes Jesus must be present with his son in order to heal him. He says he implored him to come down and heal his son, to come down further towards the Sea of Galilee into Capernaum. And so he has come to compel Jesus, hey, I want you to travel back with me. I want you to be there. I want you to do something for my son. So, so right off the bat, I mean, and it's hard for us to blame a guy, but we have to understand that that's an erroneous thought, right? That if Jesus, and he'll show us here in a minute, Jesus is so powerful, he doesn't need to be there. He's the Lord of not just time, but also space. Second, he also assumes that Jesus must heal him before he dies, or it will be too late. He doesn't understand who Jesus really is. Because as God, Jesus has power over death and operates outside of space. And Jesus does not need to be immediately present, nor is he limited to working only before death. But Jesus doesn't shoo the man away. You know what Jesus does? He does what he normally does with people. He, he takes them where they are and, and beckons them to greater, deeper faith in himself. Jesus isn't looking for you to come to him with everything all figured out. To take you where you are if you will place genuine trust and faith in him and grow you in himself. And so Jesus does this by addressing not only the man, but he actually addresses the audience at large that's there in that area. In response to a very real physical need, Jesus is saying, hey, there's a greater spiritual need that's going on in this region. Look what he says in verse 48, then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Jesus addressing the man is rebuking him, but, but really more widely and more pointedly, he's rebuking the Galileans. That's why you're, you have there, there's a word that's, that's supplied by your translators, you people, that word people is, is supplied there because the you is a plural when it's used. So Jesus is not speaking just to him, but he's speaking to everybody there, saying, hey, you, you, you guys have a, an issue with your faith. The royal official and others around him that day, they have 
some kind of faith, but really it's a, it's a flawed faith. It's, it's a faith that's built on this need to see signs and wonders time and again. And instead of focusing on Jesus and his message of the need of repentance from sin, they're focusing on these sensational acts. They wish to see more of what he could do. They wish to benefit from his miraculous healings and provision. So Jesus rebukes this man and others. He confronts their faithlessness. Because faith that's based on having to see some kind of signs and wonders, that isn't faith. True faith is rooted in the person and the word of Jesus Christ. Now signs help to confirm this faith. But they don't create that faith. I mean, that's why John even recorded these signs. He tells us that. John wasn't opposed to the signs, obviously because of the work of God. John isn't opposed to to helping us understand these things. God isn't opposed to us seeing and understanding what he has done. But understand that your faith is not built on that. Your faith is built on the word of God. And what what Jesus does is, is confirming for the people who are there, hey, this is what I've said. This is the power of God. And so Jesus is calling this man to true faith in himself. He's, he's calling for others to believe in him and who he, sa- who he is and, and what he says. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And what Jesus longs for this man and for others to rise above is this seeing is believing mentality. He wants them to develop real, authentic faith in who he is and what he's come to do. And so the rebuke is delivered. And and that man who is undeterred by that rebuke just cries out with that single-minded pursuit, imploring Jesus to come back to Capernaum before it's too late. He feels that the time is, is slipping away. He's concerned for the life of his son. And he's concerned that if Jesus delays too long, all hope will be lost. And it is here that this man is called to by Jesus to a more complete and fuller faith in himself. We see that lastly today in this faith that is established in Jesus Christ. There was a faith that was required of this man because Jesus said to him, verse 50, go your way, your son lives. You see, what Jesus does is he doesn't let up. He doesn't give in. He doesn't acquiesce to the man's plea, yet what he does is he continues to call for greater faith. He draws this man to this faith in himself. He will do for the man what this man has requested, but the man must exhibit complete trust in Jesus that it will be done. And he does this by saying to the man that he is to go his way. That is, he is to return home. And why is he supposed to return home? Jesus gives that. Because his son lives. And I want you to see the implication here of this phrase that Jesus says. The implication isn't here, your son will recover. The implication isn't, your son will eventually be okay, or I've begun the work of removing his illness. No, Jesus is telling this man, in this moment, your son is healed. While you stand here before me at Cana, your son, 16 to 20 miles away in Capernaum, is healed. He is claiming to have complete, 
omnipotence that is all power over the situation. He is claiming that he doesn't even need to be in the boy's presence to do the work. He is even claiming he doesn't need to be told where the boy is or even who he is. But as God, he knows these things. If you will think of the ramifications of that statement that Jesus said, go because your son lives, then you'll be overwhelmed by the power of God. He didn't say, now write down your address and tell me where he is. He didn't say, now where in Capernaum or what is your, what is your son's name? He simply looked at the man and said, your son lives. Folks, Jesus is God. And he knows every single one of you. He knows what you face. He knows the struggles you have. He knows the hardships that you bear that even aren't your own. He knows those needs. He is not limited. He is God. And Jesus here tells this man exactly who he is by what he says. Because if Jesus isn't God, that is a crazy statement to make to somebody else. C.S. Lewis rightly observed that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. In a statement like this, that is certainly true. Either he straight up lied to this guy, he's crazy, or he's the Lord of all. And that man has to make a decision. Will he place authentic, true faith in who Jesus is? Because Jesus wants him to believe in himself and in his power to heal at this distance, which would confirm his deity. Will he take Jesus at his word when he has been asked, when he has asked repeatedly for Jesus to come to Capernaum? And we see here what happens next in the man's faith. Is confirmed. He says, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. As he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. We are told here a most wonderful thing, that this man believes what Jesus says. He moves beyond a faith that needed a consistent constant miracle and he's now ready to place his faith not in a sign but he's placing his faith in what Jesus says has happened you see that there's a difference there's a difference in saying I need you to do this for me or I take you at your word there are many people who who who, who treat God that way they say God hey if you'll just do this for me then I'll follow you I want to tell you that most of the time when God does do that out of his grace, they don't follow him. They just wait till the next time they need something and they say, hey, if you'll do this for me. Folks, that's not faith. That's treating God like some fairy in the sky that we just check in with every once in a while. True faith is, I believe what you say. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to depend on you, even when it doesn't make sense. Because you know what? Sometimes the things we face in life, it does make it hard to follow God. It does make us wonder why. It does make us question what God is doing. But we can look in God's word and know exactly who he is, what he said, and how much he cares. And here this man, Jesus has called on him to place this type of faith in himself. So he takes his leave and 
begins to make that trip home. And as he is traveling, we find that, that his servants are coming back the same way. They're coming to find him as he goes home. And they, they observe, they, they tell him, you know, they, they observe what's, what's taking place at, at home. And we're not told what happened there, but can you imagine? I mean, they knew where he'd gone. They knew why he'd gone. And as soon as the son is better, we've got to go find him. We've got to go tell him. They wish to tell him this wonderful news. Hey, your son is recovering. The threat of death that was imminent is now gone. He said, your son lives. But this man knows there's more to be discerned from this. And so he begins to, to question his servants. He says, inquired of them the hour which he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. He wants to know, okay, now when is the time that he began to improve and the servants oblige this request, and they tell him exactly what happened. It was actually it was exactly the seventh hour. That's again either one o'clock or seven o'clock p.m., depending on the method of timekeeping that John is following. And it wasn't gradual, but it was an instant change in his life. And at that moment, the faith that the father placed in Jesus is confirmed because he remembered that it was at the seventh hour that Jesus said, "Your son lives." And in that moment, the work was done. In that instant, his son was healed because Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He showed this man that faith in himself wasn't misplaced, shaky, or unreasonable. Instead, it was firmly fixed and rewarded. And this confirmation has incredible results. We see the results in the life of this man and others. It says, and he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So having believed in Jesus has seen his work in his own family's life, there is a great transformation that takes place. There is now greater faith in Jesus. They don't go home. He doesn't go back to his family and says, hey, let's go back and see another sign. No, what do they do? They go back and they believe. They truly believe and trust in who Jesus is and what he's going to do for all mankind. What you see exhibited in the life of this father and his family is true, saving faith. It doesn't just affect him, but it affects the whole family. They, they hear his testimony and they place their trust in who Jesus is because true, confident faith in Jesus is contagious. When you encounter the Savior, you long to tell other people what he's done for you. This family would never be the same because of this encounter they had with the Savior. And here John tells us this is the second sign. Now this isn't the second miracle overall that Jesus has done. But it's the second one in this area of Cana. And it's the second that he will record for us in this, this gospel and once again, it is an authenticating proof of who Jesus is. Understand this, the signs that Jesus did do not make him God. Jesus does miracles because he is God. It doesn't work the other way around. They are confirmations that he is the son of God, sent as the savior of the world. 
They do not create faith, but they inform it and call for a greater and fuller trust. And that is exactly what they did for this family. And that's exactly what they can do for us. When you observe this sign that John has recorded through inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, and God has preserved us to read today, it is given that you would believe on Jesus as the Son of God. It is given, first and foremost, that you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would find salvation from your sin. We are told of Jesus' work so that we may experience that work in our own lives. This picture of the Father's True faith, taking Jesus at his word, is exactly what we need today. Jesus has said that he is the only way to the Father. Jesus has said that we cannot save ourselves from sin. Jesus has said that anyone who comes to him will be called a child of God. And that coming to him must be in complete faith. It is informed by the revelation of who Jesus is and what he has done. It is in committing our life and our eternity to Jesus. And as a Christian, these things inform you and encourage you that your faith in Jesus Christ is not misplaced. God does not let down his own. Now, God doesn't promise that our lives are going to be easy. In fact, if you look throughout the scriptures and you look throughout history, those who have often suffered the most are those who are followers of God. Because we live in a sinful, fallen, broken world, folks. Sometimes we we suffer consequences of our own sin. Sometimes we, we suffer because we're humans and we fall apart. Sometimes... We face trials and tribulations in our lives as as God seeks to burn away those things that, that we don't want to give to him, the sin that we struggle with in our lives, and draw us closer to himself. But all of that, he never fails. You look around this room today, and you find anyone who's walked with God for any length of time, they'll tell you there's been hard times. But he's been faithful. And this man illustrates for us exactly how faith in God and faith in Jesus is not misplaced. And very simply, whether you, whether you know him as your Savior or not, you have to answer this question. Do you trust him and take him at his word? And if you do, you will find your faith rewarded in eternal life yours. And, and that faith, the, the reward of faith that you will find is the salvation of your soul. An eternity in heaven. And a life lived in his peace and grace. True faith in Jesus Christ is rooted in the revelation of who he is and what he has done and results in a changed eternity and earthly transformation. Jesus consistently and constantly seeks to draw mankind unto himself. Oftentimes, the Lord must work on hearts in order to draw one to himself. Time after time after time. Our faith in God often requires our own growth to see the heinousness of our sin and the necessity of our Savior. Maybe you hear this message and you have heard the message of the gospel time after time after time. And you you have not yet responded to him. Well, thankfully, God is patient with us, his personal creation. He knows what we're made of, and he knows how to continue to convict us of our sin 
And at the same time, let me encourage you, you are not promised an indefinite amount of time on this earth. So will you trust him today with your eternal soul? Will you place true, complete faith in his work for the salvation of your soul? John recorded this sign to show us the identity of Christ. One who can heal from such distance and with such authority is truly the Son of God. He has authority over all and he is worthy of your trust and the commitment of your life. And Christian, when we think about the authority that Jesus Christ has, look at this parable, or sorry, this, this miracle and see the authority of Jesus Christ. Do you follow that authority in your life? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I came to know the Lord, and I, but do we practically every day live that out? Sadly, I think many a Christian seeks to reserve some of our, we try to reserve our own rights to ourselves. Well, hey, I mean, I let, I let Jesus take care of the eternity thing, and I'll just do whatever I want. My friend, you don't understand what faith in Christ is. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I have this little pet sin. I like to bring it out every once in a while. And I just, I really like doing this. I know God says this is wrong, but, and I'll just stop you right there. Because anytime you say, I know God says, but, whatever follows is sin. We seem willing to commit our souls to Jesus, but not our lives. And there is no such dichotomy that's found in the scripture because the savior of your soul is the Lord of your life. So let me encourage you to live out growing faith through salvation in Christ and a continued pursuit of growth in himself as you walk through life. I gave you that, that illustration at the beginning of the message that if you really wanted to know what what marriage was, or wanted to know if someone was married, that you'd have, you would see the evidences in their life. You would see how it affects them. And I just want to bring that back around at the end here. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've placed faith in him, there are evidences in your life. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're one who, who has strayed from God, if you're one who has who is, maybe you are a Christian, but you're, you're so deep in sin, you don't know which way is up, that's evidenced in your life as well. It comes out. It comes out in what we say. It comes out in what we do. It comes out in what we type. It comes out in your life. So we have to look at the fruit of our lives. And we have to ask God, God, what does, the, what does this say of my heart and my life? What does this say about who I am? And we have then to submit ourselves and submit our lives to his leading. And you know what? Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's painful. But God does that to grow his own. He does that to make us more complete and whole in himself. And Christian, I know that that when you go through times of conviction of sin, of what, of what Christ will refer to later on in John as, as the pruning of these things out of our lives, that's, a, that's not a thing that we probably sit around and say, I wish I got more of that. You know? But we should thank him for it. And we should be willing to undergo that with his help. 
So let us today go from this place with this idea of, of growing our faith in Christ. Whether that means that you need to respond to him as your savior or, or continue to grow in him and, and get rid of these things that he's convicted you of your, in your life, I encourage you to do so today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for the conviction of sin in our hearts and lives. Thank you for not leaving us to our own. Lord, if you, you truly didn't love us, you let us do whatever it is we wanted to do. You let us go our own way, and we'd end up in a path of destruction. And God, so many have rejected you and turned away from you and said no to the conviction of sin, and they've found that path of destruction, whether it be here on earth or in eternity. And Lord, today I pray for the soul that you are working hard on who has experienced the conviction of sin in their life and they know they don't know you as their Savior. Lord, would you not let them rest? Would you impress upon them the need they have for a Savior? And Lord, I pray today for Christians who've heard these things. Lord, I think it's safe to say in a room like this, there are some in this room that you have, you've been working on for a long time. They they know you as Savior, but they're not willing to fully commit every little part of their life to you. They hold on to things. They hold on to bitterness, to jealousy, to anger, to contention to unkindness, to idolatry, to whatever it may be, Lord. It eats away. It eats away at the relationships with others because the relationship with you isn't right. And God, I pray today you would convict us of these things. Lord, we, sometimes we're so blind to them. I pray you convict our own, my own heart that we would seek to truly Show the fruit of who you are and the fruit of the gospel to other people. Lord, may there be nothing that we hold back from you today. May we lay it all on the altar and give to you. We would be amazed at how you could use us, these frail, sinful people, in a way that lifts you up because you are the all-powerful, almighty God. Lord, we know a church full of that can make a huge difference in the world we live in, the dark world we live in. And because it's not about us, it's about you. And may we live consumed with that today. We ask as we leave this place that you would continue to work in our hearts. Would you bring us back here to worship you? In your name we pray.